morning, everyone. Am I on? And morning to those that are joining us online. Um, it's not too late to get in your car and come join us for Social Sunday. Uh, got about half an hour or so. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here. And thank you so much for the round of applause. I will try to um, live up to the expectations. <laughs> um, we're going to be starting a series this morning. And I must tell you, it's got a bit of an interesting uh, story to it as to how we came about and how, what, what the progression to this point has been. Um, Pete Rasmussen preached last week. Did anyone, was anyone here, if you're not online, his, his message is there. It was an amazing message. And I know when he started, I had preached the week before and I'd preached on hide and seek. And then Pete last week was saying how my hide and seek message had kind of messed with the plans he'd originally had for last week's message. I've got to tell you, I was sitting listening to his message going, God is clearly, clearly speaking, because basically everything he shared was the intro for our series that we're going to be going into. So if ever God was speaking, I believe it is now. And um, I, I pray that uh, as we go through the series, it'll be for the next few weeks, that you would, you would learn from it and, and humbly accept my apologies because I'm not a big theologian and I'm not, I'm not necessarily all that well-versed in every little aspect of history. And so you will see I, I refer back to lots of notes to, during this time. Um, but I pray that you would also go, and we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at a particular Bible character over the next few weeks. And I believe it's important that we do this, uh, because I, th- I think we mentioned it in Alpha on Monday night. The Alpha video was speaking about the Bible and the relevance of Scripture. And a lot of times we kind of think, oh, the Bible's done and dusted. Like, those guys from the Old Testament, what can I possibly learn from them? Like, what's the point? And we kind of have this mentality of the Old Testament no longer counts, you know, because Jesus came and so all of that is done away with. But Christ himself said that he did not come to abolish any of the law. He did not come to get rid of any of that history. He came to fulfill it. And so I pray that as we go through the word this morning and as we look at um, the next few weeks and we, we unpack just a little bit, I mean, what, what justice can we really do this in half an hour on a Sunday? So I would encourage you to go and to read, um, read the, the story yourself and to read the scriptures yourself throughout the next few weeks. And I, I believe that God would speak to each of us individually where we are, not just as a group message, but I believe there's something in the story for each one of us. Um, my dad, he passed away two years ago. My dad was a very avid runner. When my dad got enthusiastic about something, he got enthusiastic. And so when I was, it must have been about the year before I was born, he took up running. And so when I was six weeks old, he did his first Comrades Marathon. Is there anyone here who did the Comrades last week? Anyone? No one. Anyone here who watched the Comrades last week? Yeah. <laughs> After church last week, we went en route. And like I said, my dad was such an enthusiastic runner. I mean, all you ever had to do was tell him you were thinking about taking up running, and he would buy you a logbook. I mean, that's true, love, yes? My cousin in Joburg once made the mistake of saying to my dad, I think I might want to do the Comrades one day. And my dad bought Jonathan a logbook and phoned him every, every day. How did your run go? How far did you go? What distance? What was your time? He had this enthusiasm for it. So when I mean, my dad did a few comrades, and he even did a washi, which is one of those 100 milers, 160 kilometers for fun. I don't know. There's that verse in the Bible that says, only the wicked run. Clearly see I'm not a jogger, right? But I always watch these guys doing comrades, and I get so inspired. And so last Sunday after church, we took a drive up, and we went first to Pantown, and we went to, then we went closer towards the stadium at the end. And um, 
we were standing en route, not because we knew anyone in particular. We knew two runners that were actually running the race. But we were, we were just enjoying the standing on the sidelines, cheering for the runners. Um, but I can tell you now, my, my dad taught us to do that. My dad was the runner, so even after he'd stopped doing comrades, he would still go en route, and he would be the guy giving you advice and whatnot. And it struck me last week, while we were standing on the sidelines watching comrades, I remembered that verse in Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3, which says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this idea of our Christian journeys being a race is one that's repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. But the thing that really struck me there, and it struck me last week while we were standing on the side too, there was great enthusiasm when we saw them come past, but that didn't stop us from cheering for everyone else. And when you could identify like a running club or someone's name or the country they were running from, you'd shout them out by that name or by their country, right? Like, go Australia, go it was Brazil, there was India, there were all sorts of nations running this race. And on the sideline, we were standing there. And I can tell you my cheers would not be anything like my dad's because my dad knew what it was to run that race. So when he was standing there cheering for the runners, he wasn't just doing it in theory. He was doing it because he had been there before. And that's how it is with us. We are, we are on this Christian journey. And I don't think we realize sometimes that we are surrounded by witnesses who have been there before. The, the people in Scripture of old who are watching us, who are cheering us on, who we can still take advice from. Like if I ever come and give you running advice, it's not worth anything. I promise you that. But if my dad had done it because he had run the race before, whatever he told you was worth something. And that's how it is with our journeys. We are on this race. We are going forward, but we mustn't despise the witnesses who are around us. We mustn't despise the word of God and go, well, oh, that's old, that's old, that's old-fashioned, that's outdated. Because I can tell you now, every single piece of scripture is relevant just as much as it was 2,000, 6,000 years ago, Old Testament times, as it is for us today. And so we're going to be looking over the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking just one character from, uh, from Scripture, um, and I'm sure you all know him. Who's familiar with the guy Moses? Moses in the bulrushes, the baby in the basket. And we're going to be going through his life and his lessons and um, hopefully drawing on that to see just how relevant his message, which is from ancient times, just how relevant it is for us today as he's one of the witnesses that is cheering us on in the race. He's one of those guys that's run the race before us and that we can learn from. Pete last week was speaking about the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's really what the series is all about. Um, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to go and, and listen to it online. But basically, to summarize, Pete was speaking about the fact that we've got the Holy Spirit as born-again Christians. We've got the Holy Spirit with us. We, he, he lives in us, right? And when two or three are gathered, there he is with us. But there are also certain times where he comes upon us with great power. And um, the, the series we're going to be doing is entitled When Worlds Collide. Because we're going to be looking at some pivotal moments in the life of Moses when God pulled back the curtain of heaven and heaven and earth literally met in a dramatic way. 
and just how important those encounters and those moments were in the course of history and in the course of the lead-up to the, the birth of Christ. Are you, are you all okay today? Is this all right? I know, I'm not allowed to ask if it's making sense. That's what I do in my class. So, just to summarize very quickly, it's quite a historical message. And the, 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 um, the story of Moses is found in Exodus. Um, so you can go and read that on your own. But I'm going to give you a very basic overview and a basic summary of what the story is about. Uh, just up to a certain point. So, after Joseph, remember Joseph and his multicolored coat? Do you remember that guy, right? After, after he had brought the Israelites into Egypt, which was the land where they, there'd been great famine and Moses... Uh, Joseph, excuse me, was a big leader in Egypt, and he brought his people into Egypt. The Israelites began to prosper. They were a prosperous nation within Egypt. And they, their numbers grew, their crops grew, their livestock grew. And the, the Pharaoh, a few generations on from Joseph, began to look at what they were doing. He looked at the prosperity they had, and he didn't like it at all. And so he started to oppress the Israelite people who were living in his land. And he started to make laws that weren't in their favor. And now they must work for us. And um, they, they, they were basically enslaved. And at first it was fairly subtle. At first there was kind of just that general oppression. And then he began to go, well, even oppressing them, even while they're slaves, they're still growing too much in number. There's just too many of them. God is, well, he didn't acknowledge God, but, but they're being blessed beyond measure. They, they, they just, they're still prospering no matter how much we try to put them down. And so he issues a order to the midwives. And he says to the Egyptian midwives who are going to go and help the Israelite ladies give birth, he says, when you get there, if the baby is a girl, you can let it live. But if the baby is a boy, you have to kill it. And the midwives were afraid. They were afraid of the, Isra uh, the Israelite God. They were afraid of God. And so they didn't do this. They, they didn't obey the, the Pharaoh's orders. And so he takes it a step further then. They, they say to him, no, by the time we get there, the Israelite ladies have given birth. You know, it's not up to us. We, we, we have no control over this. So then Pharaoh gets just outright blatant with his oppression and his hate for the, the Israelites. And he orders that any Israelite child that is born, any boy that is born, must be thrown into the river and must be drowned. And this is where the story of Moses starts, because Moses is born at a time where it was literally against the law for him to be born. He was basically an, a, an illegal, he was a crime. And instead of throwing him into the river as the law commanded, his mom hid him. And she hid him for three months. But as you know, I mean, a three-month-old baby, a newborn, you can kind of, um, I suppose, hide easily. But as the child becomes louder and more active, it's not so easy to hide. And she coats the basket with um, tar on the outside to make it waterproof, and she goes and hides it in the reeds next to the, next to the Nile River. And a short while later, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe, and she spots the basket, and she sends one of her, her uh, maidens off to go and fetch the basket, and she recognizes that this is an, a, a Hebrew child in the basket. But she has compassion on him and pity on him, and so she decides she's going to take him in as her own child. Um, Moses' sister at the time was hiding in the, in, the, in the reeds, watching all this go on, his biological sister Miriam. And so she runs out and says to Pharaoh's daughter, you're going to need a nurse, someone to nurse the baby, like a wet maid for the baby for a while. Um, I know a lady, I'll go and get one. And so she gets Moses' actual biological mother. And so for approximately three years or so, Moses was nursed and nannied by his biological mom. 
But once he was weaned, once he was no longer requiring his mom to feed him anymore, he then was taken to Pharaoh's court where Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as her son. And then there's like sort of a gap. We are told that Moses was raised in the way of the Egyptians, that he was educated in everything there was to do with Egypt. He was, for all intents and purposes, an Egyptian. And then we get to a point in the story where Moses is, he must have at some point known his heritage, I assume, when he was with his mom, and possibly even Pharaoh's daughter herself may have told him where he came from. And he reaches a point in the story when he's grown up and he's walking through Egypt one day and he sees an Egyptian slave driver um, beating or oppressing a, a Hebrew slave. And so Moses, the Bible says, this is it. it what, if you ever watched that movie, Prince of Egypt, anyone watched it? It's the kiddies cartoon version of Moses. The whole death is an accident and the guy accidentally falls and it wasn't like that. The Bible tells us Moses looked left and right to see who was watching him. And then he killed the Egyptian slave driver and hid his body in the sand. And Moses obviously felt that was an okay thing to do. He probably felt it was justified because by this point he was clearly aware of the Hebrew oppression. And I'll get to this in a moment, but, but there is evidence to prove that he was actually against the oppression at that point. Right? Anyway, next day, are we doing okay, by the way? Or am I boring you? Okay. All right. So, um, Next day, Moses is out again walking with the Hebrew people, walking among his heritage, his, 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 his uh, biological nation, and he sees two Hebrew slaves having an argument. And so he stops them, tries to pull them apart, and they turn around and say to him, who made you judge and ruler over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he was suddenly, he realized the thing he thought he'd done in secret was not in secret, and people knew and the next verse on from, from that tells us that Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh basically put a price on Moses' head. He wanted him dead. And so Moses flees. He runs out of Egypt, and he runs eastwards into the Midian territories. And that in itself is a very interesting journey. We're not going to get too much into it, but often, often we read the scripture, and we go, okay, he fled from Egypt to Midian. Um, there we are, end of that journey. That would have been a fairly long fairly exhausting journey in and of itself. And he would have been fleeing as a fugitive. He would have been running as, uh, under fear. And he would have had to pass through something that, according to history, is called the Wall of the Ruler. Has anyone heard of that before? So the Wall of the Ruler was a series of forts that the Egyptian pharaoh had built on the eastern side of his territory to protect them from eastern invaders and attack. And so Moses didn't just run across like we might picture in our minds, like, oh, he left Egypt today, you know, climbed on a train or a camel or whatever and made it across to Midian. It would have been a journey that he took full of fear, and he would have been running, literally fleeing for his life. Anyway, and Moses gets to Midian, and he takes a, a rest near a well, um, and while he's at the well, he sees some Midianite girls come to the well and they want to get water out to water their sheep. But some other shepherds come along and start har like harassing the girls and chasing them off. And Moses comes to their aid. So he steps in and he comes to their rescue. Anyway, he then waters their sheep for him, uh, for them. They say, thank you very much. They go home and they go home and they tell their father Jethro. His name's also Ruel in the scriptures, but we'll call him Jethro. Um, they tell him, hey, we were rescued by an Egyptian. 
Notice they didn't say we were rescued by a Hebrew guy. We were rescued by an Egyptian. And Jethro says, well, where is he? Don't be rude. Like, go fetch him. Tell him to come for a meal. And so that's how Moses finds himself in Jethro's household. And he ends up staying on there for several years. And in fact, he marries one of uh, Jethro's daughters, Zephorah, and they have two sons together. And the first child that was born, he named his son Gershom, which means I am a foreigner in this land. Interesting point. Hold on to that one. Anyway, we then pick up the scriptures, and this is what I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 3. We then get to the most well-known part of the story. So at this point, Moses is probably, he's well over 40 years old. He has been, he was a prince of Egypt, and now he has been reduced to a shepherd in his father-in-law's household. And um, this is where it picks up in Exodus chapter 3. It should appear on the screen as well. It says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he had led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. From that moment on, there's a very interesting conversation that takes place. And I think many times in our Christian journeys, we pray, or has anyone ever shared this prayer with me? God, please reveal yourself to me. Speak to me, Lord. Has anyone ever prayed that? Father, please speak to me. Speak to me. And how much we would love a burning bush encounter. How much we would love to have the physical manifestation of God in front of us, speaking to us, calling to us. And it, and, and it does happen. And Pete was speaking about those times where, where we encounter God last week. And in this case, you'd like to think, oh, well, Moses had this. Of course, God says go. Of course, he's going to go, yes, Lord, absolutely. But he doesn't. Moses asks God in the conversation, he asks him three questions. He says, first of all, he goes, who am I that you want to send me? I mean, you've got God. God's going, go. This is what I'm calling you to. Here's a bush that's miraculously not burning up in flames. This is, this is like God Almighty revealing himself. He goes, go, do this for me. And Moses is like, why me? And then God gives him an answer. And you'd think, okay, after that answer, that's, that's a pretty good answer, Lord. Um, so Moses must then go. 
But he doesn't. Instead, he says to God, who are you? He says, well, if the people ask me who sent them, you know, sent me to them, what, what should I say? Who are you? And then God gives him an answer, and it's a pretty good answer. But then Moses has another question. And he goes, okay, fine, fair enough. But what if they don't believe me? What if the mission you're sending me on actually fails? It's very interesting if you read Exodus, what God's answer to Moses was for each of those three questions. So the three questions, who am I, who are you, and what if I fail? We'll get to what God answered in a moment, but I want to share something that jumped out at Scripture when I was reading the Scriptures, jumped out to me, and I pray that I do it justice this morning. Um, And I hope that it speaks to you the same way it spoke to me. But it was this. The story of Moses appears not just in Exodus, but it is also retold and referred to several times throughout Scripture. And it is retold in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts, Acts is the first book where we we learn about the Holy Spirit coming to live with the people. And we start, it's literally called the book of Acts because it's the actions of the early church. And there's a guy in the the book of Acts by the name of Stephen. And Stephen is, is, is famous because he was the first official Christian martyr who died for his faith. According to, according to what we have record of. And just before Stephen is put to death, while he's got these crowds of guys facing him and they're about to stone him, instead of pleading for his life, he starts to share the story with them. And he, he refers back to Moses. And so we get an interesting take on the story of Moses from the eyes of somebody who lived closer to his time, who would have studied Moses as part of his, his education as he was growing up. And... Um, Stephen says this in Acts 7, verse 23 to 27. Are we doing okay this morning? We're all right. Okay. It's a very different kind of historical message. So there's lots of scripture to refer to. We could actually just read the book. Like, we can do that for an hour, and you'd still get something from it, I promise. So Acts 7, verse 23 to 27 says this. This is now Stephen telling you the story I just told you, basically. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. This is while he was still a prince in Egypt. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses, now this is the key thing, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. That's interesting because the book of Exodus doesn't really highlight that. So here's my take on Moses. You've got Moses who was raised an Egyptian. There's no doubt about that. He knew the Egyptian ways. But he was also Israelite. And he was educated by his mom, probably in his first few years. And there's also no evidence to suggest that Pharaoh's daughter would hide his heritage from him because the Egyptians were a polytheistic nation. In other words, they they worshipped multiple gods. So you probably find that the Hebrew god was known to Moses, even just in his education as an Egyptian. He would have known in theory about this god that the Hebrews served. He wouldn't have served him himself, but he he would have had an idea. And at some point in his life, Moses... The prince of Egypt, 
a leader among the Egyptian people starts to kind of have compassion on the Hebrew slaves and obviously starts to identify with them at some point. To the point that when he decides he's going to go out and start spending time with the Israelites, he has this notion that he will one day set the people free. This is long before the burning bush encounter. This is long before um, God spoke to Moses. This is long before he even had been discovered from, from, um, from killing the Egyptian uh, slave driver. Moses had this idea. He had this notion that he was going to do something to set the Israelites free. The trouble is that Moses at that point believed he was going to do that in his own power and by his own strength. Now, if you know anything about the book of Moses, you'll also know that Moses is well known for having some kind of speech impediment. I don't know if you did know that, but um, at one point he says to God, when God says, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh, Moses turns around and says, but I've never been eloquent. He actually says, he says, I'm slow of tongue. I, I can't speak that well. Yet Stephen, in Acts 7 verse 22, says this about Moses. He says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And so you have this apparent contradiction. You've got this guy who at one point had power in his speech and his actions. And then you've got the same guy many years on who's facing God Almighty himself who goes, no, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And so I think the main problem with Moses, while he may have had a, a speech impediment, there's no indication that he was ever put off by that or that it ever had ever hindered him up until the point where God encountered him at the burning bush. And this is what I believe, and you can argue with me, and it's, it's a theory, but I believe that Moses' main problem, by the time he encountered God in a physical form, was that he had absolutely no confidence left at all. He was a displaced person. He was living in a land where he didn't feel that he belonged. Yes, he'd gotten married there. Yes, he'd been welcomed into the family, but he even called his child a foreigner. We're foreigners. We don't belong here. When God asked him to speak, this is a man who history tells us used to work for the Pharaoh of Egypt. He used to command people in Egypt. If you go to some other historical documents, it says that Moses actually went out on conquests and uh, sort of sorted out towns and had led armies and whatever in the name of Pharaoh. So maybe he had a speech impediment, but it had never stopped him before. He was quite happy, as Stephen says, to be a man who with powerful speech and powerful action in his, in his time as a prince of Egypt. But now you find Moses... After all of this has happened, he's got absolutely no confidence. And when God comes to him and says, this is the plan I have for you, which happens to line up with something that Moses had always felt was his calling anyway, he goes, no, why me? Who am I? Who are you? What if they don't believe me? How many of us here this morning have a calling on our lives? How many of us have something that you feel that God has called you to. But something has happened along the way, and now you've got no confidence in it. What am I going to do with my life? That's how I'm going to serve God. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm going to do. And then it hasn't gone as planned. The people have rejected you, or the circumstances didn't line up, and where you thought, I've got to be in Egypt so I can set these people free, you suddenly find yourself a fugitive on the run into the wilderness, and um, you're taken in as a foreigner, and you never quite feel like you belong, like where you are right now, I don't quite belong here. 
I believe that Moses' main problem was not a speech impediment. I believe it was a lack of confidence at all. I believe he was merely a shell of the man he had once been by the time he has a physical encounter with God. And that's the message that spoke to me about, about Moses. How often does God come to us and say, this is what I want. This is how I'm speaking to you. And we go, no, surely not me. Like, are you sure? You sure you've got the right number here? Like, me? You want me to do that? You want me to go where? What do I say? What do I do? What if they don't believe me? And so Moses asks God these three questions. He goes, why me? Now, if, someone, if you've given someone a mission and they say, they say why me? Why, why have you picked me for this? The chances are we're going to come to them and go, oh, because you're so good at this and you're so good at that and I like this about you and this is your strength and this is your character. We, we try to build people up. God doesn't do that with Moses. When Moses says to him, Lord, why me? Why are you picking me? God doesn't say, oh, because you're, just, you're so awesome and you're a prince. I mean, think about this. If Moses were not a prince of Egypt... There's no ways he could have entered the Pharaoh's court when he eventually did. There's no ways he would have had the sort of, you don't just walk into Pharaoh's court. You know, if he hadn't had that sort of background and that sort of lining up that he knew the Egyptian customs and rituals and methods, he probably wouldn't have had the access to Pharaoh that he later needs in the story. But God doesn't say, oh, Moses, I, I've put you in the perfect position. You're the right guy for this job. You're like, like Moses, I believe in you. God doesn't say that at all. When Moses says, why me, Lord? God's answer is, I am with you. Why me, Father? Well, because I'll be there. Sometimes we want to hear all about, oh, this is, this is why I'm perfectly suited for this. This is my job. This is my strength. This is what I'm good at. And God's going, that's, that's, not, that's not the main crux of the matter. That's not the main focus. The main focus is that when God calls you to something, he goes with you into that thing. So where you might be sitting here this morning going, well, I'm a foreigner in a land. I don't feel like I belong right now. Like, I had a plan, but that plan didn't go as I planned it. Or I'm feeling a little bit lost right now. God's answer isn't some great big speech about how wonderful we are as human beings. And his answer to us is, but I'm with you. I'm going to go with you to Egypt. I'm going to go with you into that place and then I'm going to tell you what to do and I'm going to show you and I'm going to explain to you what to say and there's going to be signs and there's going to be wonders. And it's not in Moses' power that this was going to happen. It's not in our power that it happens. It's in the power of God working through us. And the whole theme for this, this year in church has been to go deeper with God. And two weeks ago, we did the hide and seek message where I was explaining how no matter how much we think we can hide from God, we can't. And then Pete last week brought the message of the Holy Spirit in us, with us, upon us at times. God is with us, and therein lies any power that we ever have. It's not our might. It's not our strength. It's not our good ideas and plans. Like Moses was like, yeah, I'm going to lead these, these Israelites out of slavery. That's a good plan. And then it didn't go how he planned it. Because if he had, it wouldn't have been God. It would have been Moses' power. And there wouldn't have been a show for the Israelites, which we'll speak about in the next few weeks, and the Israelites and the Egyptians to realize who the one true living God was. Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. 
Those are his words to God in Exodus 4, verse 13. How many of us can relate to that? God's like, here's the message. It doesn't, and listen, it doesn't have to be leading people out of slavery. It can be something really small, something that we think means nothing. Like, oh, that's just such a trivial act. Surely not, God. Like, it's a little bit embarrassing. I don't want to do that. Like, go pray for that person. Go say that to that person. Go at your workplace. Why don't you, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Or, and God speaks to us, and we go, no, please, Lord, someone else. Please send someone else. Like, it's not me. I'm not the right person for this job. I don't speak well. I don't do whatever it is you want me to do well. And God's like, that's perfect, because I'm not looking for somebody who's going to do it in their own strength. I'm looking for somebody who's going to do it in mine. We sometimes have the best laid plans. But ultimately, it's not our plans that prevail. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says this, For many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's will or the Lord's purpose that prevails. You and I might go, this is where I want to go with my life. And I do believe that God puts into us passions that are kind of hints at our calling, Like things that really excite you are probably exactly in line with the gifts that God has given you. But we might go, this is how I'm going to use my gifts. And God's like, no, actually, this is how I'm going to use them. We just have to be available, and we have to make ourselves available to him. C.S. Lewis says this, and this was one of my dad's favorite books, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Another thing that he was super enthusiastic about, if you ever mention C.S. Lewis, he would buy you a copy of this. There might even be people, I'm not joking, there might even be people sitting right here who have copies that he bought them because he was that passionate about it. But C.S. Lewis says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. I mean, think about Moses at that point. Moses was an educated man. He was in his early years a man of power a man that people listened to, a man that people respected because he was one of the leaders up there in Egypt in the Egyptian court. I mean, he probably bumped shoulders with Pharaoh. If you watch the, the Disney movie, they were brothers and they got on really well. I don't quite know at that point um, how, how factual that is, but he would have known Pharaoh, certainly as children probably growing up. He was a man of power. There was, there was a lot going on for him. And then in a very dramatic way, it all falls apart and everything he's planned falls apart. Imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. Like God comes in, he starts moving. You're like, of course, of course he's going to clean out. Of course he's going to fix that. Oh, I've been meaning to repair that for a while. God's going to start doing things. When you first give your life to God, Things start happening, and that's okay. Like, Lord, you're going to free me from that addiction. You're going to get me right on that course. All the things we know are wrong with our lives, we go, okay, God, you can have those. You can fix those. What about the things that are right with your life? Can God have those too? Because C.S. Lewis says, you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Moses had a plan. We have a plan. Moses thought he knew what that plan would look like in the long run. Sometimes we think, that's the plan. That's definitely, that's it, Lord. Those are the steps. Could you please just bless my plan? That's not what we're called to. And it took Moses to be broken down to this man who was nothing more than a shell of what he once was. It took Moses to have absolutely no confidence in himself anymore. And I'm not saying that's where we have to get to. But in his case, this extreme example where God literally removed everything from him so that he could find who he was in God again. Sometimes we think, God, you can build me into a cottage. And God's like, but why? I want you to be a palace. When Moses speaks to God, and God's first words to him are, go and tell the Israelites that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in other words, the God of all your forefathers, is the one that has sent you. That would have sp- spoken profoundly to Moses because it would, have been, it would have been the God who never changes. I want to tell you this this morning. The God of Moses and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is still the God that we serve today. God has not changed. His plans have not changed. And he would want for you and I that we would be part of those plans. So this morning, if there's something that you feel like, Lord, this is, this is something I've been holding on to, or Father, this is not what I'd planned for my life, or Lord, I feel completely displaced, I feel like I don't belong, I feel like I'm not quite where I thought I should be at this point. Maybe it's not about us putting our plans in action. Maybe it's about us turning to God and seeking his presence. The answer to all three of Moses' questions every time he asked them was God's presence. Not some fancy words, not some fancy notions, not some great theories. God's answer, who am I, Lord? That doesn't matter. I'm with you. Well, who are you, Lord? I am. I am who I am. The beginning and the end. And why will, will they believe me? But I'll be there. They don't have to believe you. They have to believe me. As we go through the series, we're going to be unpacking the presence of God. But I would encourage you at home as well to spend time in the Word. Go and research the story of Moses. Go and, go and read Exodus. Start Exodus chapter 1. It's an easy read. It's a nice, it's a, it's a very cool story. You know, we learned it in Sunday school, but there's so much more to it than what the children's Bible stories can share. Go and read that. Go and get into the Word of God so that over the next few weeks, as we look at Moses and we look at his character, you would, with, within yourselves, have an understanding of who he is, that God might speak to you. Perhaps he speaks to you differently than, the, than how he's spoken to me in the message. But God wants us to have his presence. He wants us to be in his plans. And I believe that's where he's taking us as a church and as individuals. So I'm going to ask that we stand... And we'll pray together and then we're going to, we'll go outside and enjoy some fellowship and some social Sunday. But I really pray that you're challenged this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember the presence of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for 
the message that you've given us in your word, the stories that you've shared, Lord, the, the windows that you've opened to the past that we can look through and look at the men and ladies that have come before us. Father, I pray that as we run this race, as we go forward, Lord, that it would only be by your power, by your presence. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who feels lost, who feels lonely, who feels out of place, who feels like maybe the plans just aren't lining up the way they thought, Father, may they right now have an experience of you. May they, may they take their eyes off their problems, Lord, and look to God. May they look to you, Lord, and, and realize your presence and who you are, Father, and who we are in you. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would speak to us throughout this week. Lord, as we go into your word, as we, as we read your scripture, Father, as we uncover Moses' story over the next few weeks, Father, may it speak to us as a church, to us as families represented by the church, Lord, to us as individuals, that we may be challenged, Lord, that we may move forward and we would keep our eyes on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.